Welcome to Connections. I'm Mike Tom with Colleen Hood. At the tender age of three, David Lango was labeled incorrigible by the very professionals who were supposed to protect him and look after his well-being. The little boy, of course, that word itself was meaningless, but he would bear the weight of its implications for a lifetime. We'll hear about David's journey coming up today on Connections. David Langdo was an orphan labeled by the system as hopeless at the tender age of four. Trauma and abuse led him to addiction at the age of 12. Yesterday on Part 1, David told us how all these issues had led him to put up walls around himself. However, he says he was eventually able to start trusting people. How how did you finally be able to trust and to, uh, well, not hurt, to care for people and allow yourself to be cared for then? What were some of the best things that helped you escape that world of addiction and start a journey towards healing? Well, the best thing that ever happened to me was... Uh, uh, even as a teenager, I, I had this uh, uh, talent and uh, gift, if you will, uh, of working with kids on our street. And, uh, and, and my, even my best friends and people in my gang and everything, they, they didn't understand well, how I could spend so much time with these kids playing street hockey, football, going to the parks, going to the Toronto Island, all kinds of things. Uh, and, and I realized that later that these kids gave me something that nobody else could, and that was unconditional love. They gave me uh, a sense that I was a good person and not a bad person. I struggled with that good and bad for years. Uh, and they, they made everything feel okay during my waking hours, which which nobody else seemed to be able to do. So I adored these kids. And, and uh, I was luckily, uh, fortunately, I was offered a job when I was 17 in southern Ontario. Uh, and I took it as a child care worker. And here I am showing up for work with all these issues of my own. Uh, and drug and alcohol included, and, and, and stepping into a professional role. And, and I took that on really seriously, and I did very well for a couple of years. Uh, and then, uh, like everything else in my life up to that time, I, I gave up, I stopped. It was too much. Uh, it became overwhelming. The hours were long, da 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 And And I packed my bags and I left. Uh, but I, since then, returned to the, the, the health profession. I didn't leave it long. I, I ended up coming to Alberta in 76 and started working the government here a month later uh, in, the, in an institution with kids that were emotionally disturbed, mostly youth, mostly with, uh, with emotional problems, but also charges. So I, I continue that work, and I've been doing it ever since. So uh, I've been in the helping kind of profession for since 1976, on a full-time basis while I'm trying to sort out my own life. Uh, what the catalyst was in, in, in when, when I was 28, I, I hit what we call a bottom in recovery. And uh, I, I left my job, left my home, left my wife. Uh, I had a son at the time, left him. And I, and I chose to go live on the streets in Edmonton for about 11 days. Uh, and I nearly died down there. Uh, I finally came to uh, 11 days after and realized that I was going to die if I didn't stop. And, and luckily I had uh, enough sense that I always had people around me that that, that cared and showed that they cared, and they, I believe they did. Uh, and one was a social worker who immediately booked me into the detox center at age, I think it was 21, 22, maybe 23 in, in downtown Edmonton. And that, that's what started the, the whole process of recovery. I, I found out uh, there very quickly that I belonged somewhere in this world. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't necessarily on the reserve or in the Longo family, but it was in the rooms with people that had the same problem I did. Compare that moment to when you're a teenager and you read that label put on you of incorrigible, hopeless, to that moment 
of when you realize that you do belong in this world? It's uh, like night and day, black and white. I, uh, it, it's an amazing discovery to, to have, and, and I pray, and I've been working for years and trying to help other people, addicts and, and alcoholics, find that, that place in their life. Uh, it's it's, it's game-changing. It, there's, there's no toys about it uh, since that time. And when I made up, I've always known this about myself. When I make up my mind to do something, I will do it. <laughs> and uh, I'd made up my mind, and, and uh, I'd had enough. And I, I turned everything around, it, it, not overnight, mind you. And I, that, I need to make that very clear. Yeah. Because at that age, I still had not talked about the reserve. I still had not talked about my losses. I still not talked about anything that was that was uh, still troubling me inside. Nobody had even touched that yet. So part of my process was to get therapy, uh, and part and part of what I understood to, that would be helpful for me, being raised in a non-native community, uh, was to go to a doctor, go to a hospital, go to a program, which I did readily, and and I signed my into a psychiatric program, and uh, worked there eight hours a day, five days a week for about six and a half, seven months. Uh, so that that decision, as as I bring it back to what you're asking about, was life changing. It, it, it was more than the, the worst that I could ever become. Uh, if I was incorrigible at one time, I, I realized I, I, I could change that, and I could be somebody in this world and contribute something to this world. So, One of the most amazing things of your story of being bounced around home to home and in an orphanage and that label of incorrigible is now we can hear it as we're talking to you in the background, the happy squeals of children. And you're actually a foster parent yourself now. Uh, why did you make that decision to foster, and what's the experience been like? Well, the, the decision was, was was not it didn't come to me overnight. My wife and I were uh, were actually uh, she was working at a, at a home for children, females with uh, drug addictions. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they'll be okay for nothing. <laughs> I know what it's like to have brothers in, in fights, and I haven't heard anything, anything that comes close to that. <laughs> David, you're a foster parent. Has fostering your own foster kids, has that helped in your own healing in ways? Definitely. My my own healing, though, comes first, and, mm. and it always has. Uh, and, uh, and, and I need to say that publicly everywhere I go that uh, I can't do anything for anybody unless I'm really cleaned up and and, uh, and healthy myself. And I faked it for a lot of years, but uh, it's more sincere now. Uh, so my resolve to, to stay drug-free and to get and to get help has been ongoing for the past 35 years. Uh, and part of that journey has been 7,000 AA meetings and NA wow. meetings. I've been to psychiatrists. I've been hypnotized. I've been on, on medications that would help me, help me to... Uh, uh, well, calm down to help me fix, uh, you know, be able to concentrate. All kinds of things that I've suffered for years. Uh, and and part of our journey was my wife and I were uh, were uh, were at home. She was working at a at a facility for teenagers that had these problems, and they lived in this home. Uh, and one of the teenagers, she went up there and she got a job there. And she worked there. One of the teenagers was leaving. She was only fifteen, going on sixteen, I think. And the only plan that the department here had for them was for to help her go to her boyfriend's house and set her up there. And I was thinking, this is ridiculous. What does this world come to? We, we're, we're, there's got to be something else. Uh, um, and uh, Marcy said to me, well, do you, do, you, do you think we could take her in for a while? And I said, well, uh, 
Well, sure, we could. We have room, and uh, I hadn't even thought of that. So she came, and we had a very good experience with her, and she moved on, and and, and we found out has not been doing well since. But in any case, it, it opened the door to us taking children in. So we, we went through two years of foster training and opened our doors. So the, the big picture was that we were going to open our doors, have children in, and I would come home, leave my work full-time, and Marcy and I could be together all day and live a happy life with, with children. Uh, not so. It, it has probably been the hardest decision I've ever made in my 45 years in working because it's full-time. You bring it home. You don't bring it home. It's here when you get here. And uh, as wonderful kids. We have about 18, 19 in their homes since that time. Uh, and it's really changed. Uh, it's helped me change uh, uh, in a sense that I didn't think I'd ever have it in me to give unconditionally to somebody else's child. My own, yes, but I didn't know if I had that in me to do that, and I found out I do. Uh, Marcy and I have adopted two of our boys, one is five, one is six, both with a uh, Native background, and uh, uh, they're, they're our children. We keep in touch with their families, so the rules have changed a lot about removing children from reserves and, 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 not, and, and not seeing their families again. We have to get them to their families. It's, it's part of our mandate to keep yeah. that connection alive. So it, it's helped me immensely. Yes, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, they're going to jump on the trampoline, so. <laughs> I, I'm thinking, what can happen on a trampoline? <laughs> David, what do you hope people will take away from your book? Well, you know, um, this has come as a result of the work I've done and the people I've met and the places I've, I've already spoken to about my story before it came a book. And uh, the feedback I was I was given years ago, and I'm going back, you know, 15, 20 years ago, was that, have you ever thought of writing a book? And I said, no, no, that's not me. I don't write. I don't, you know, I hardly read, you know, that that's not my thing. And uh, they said, well, you should write a book because, you know, there's more people that hear your story. I said, well, thank you very much for that compliment, da, 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 but that's not me. Uh, so I've spoken to literally thousands of people in the Alberta region, in B.C., and uh, uh, some in Ontario as well about my story. And I kept getting the same feedback that, boy, you know, people should know about your story. People should know about this. It could be really helpful to a lot of people. And I, I, me, it was just part of my healing to get out of myself, share my story, and help others. And that's all it was. And so finally, uh, when I discovered in recovery that this does not happen overnight, that it takes a lot of work for someone to enter recovery and stay. The meetings I've been in and thousands and thousands of people I've met over the years in, in the rooms of the fellowships don't, don't stay. They don't last. A uh, very few percentage actually stay clean and sober. And I've been dwelling on that for a while going like, what is wrong with this? Cause there's, you know, it worked for me. <laughs> if it worked for me, why, why can't they get it? And then through my experience, I realized that there are a lot of people that are still suffering from childhood stuff experiences, trauma, that once they clean up and once they get a few sober days behind them, when you look at that stuff, uh, in some cases it's enough to turn you around and go right back into the world that you developed uh, uh, out of uh, through drug and alcohol addiction. David, how long did it take you to write your book, Incorrigible? I took about two years. My pen and my paper everywhere I went, and I'd have a coffee here and drink there and a meeting there or whatever. And I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, and I couldn't stop writing. 
And I realized that part part of my journey was that I needed to go back and write everything, uh, not just bits and parts of it or, or the healing part of it or the recovery part of it. It's, I had to write everything down that I remembered and I was told and I've since found out uh, to help me in my journey. So part of my book is very selfish. It was, it was part of me dealing with part of me. Uh, the other part was the information I'd received about helping others. And I said, well, maybe that's a, a way I can, somebody can actually pick this up and say, hey, I know, I, I can relate to that or this makes sense to me or wow, I'm glad I never went through that or whatever and, and help make sense to them about the decisions they need to make in their lives uh, regarding which direction they're going because bottom line, only we can do that. All the help in the world can get us there. But only we can make that decision. Thanks, David, for your conversation this morning. Be sure to pick up his book, Encourageable. We'll talk to you again on Connections.